Welcome to the LSE Events Podcast by the London School of Economics and Political Science. Get ready to hear from some of the most influential international figures in the social sciences. Hello uh, and a warm welcome uh, to today's event, uh, Competition Policy uh, in Europe after COVID-19. Um, so hopefully... Uh, this event is hosted by the LSE Festival, uh, How Do We Get to a Post-Covid World? Uh, I am Angelo Martelli, and I'm an assistant professor in uh, European and International Political Economy here uh, at the LSE European Institute. And I'm delighted uh, to be chairing uh, um, this event, uh, and delighted also to welcome uh, our speakers that I will introduce in a moment. Before I do, uh, I have a few housekeeping announcements. Uh, so for those Twitter users in the audience, uh, both here and online, the hashtag for today's event is hashtag LSE Festival. Uh, the event is being recorded and will hopefully be made into a podcast subject to no technical difficulties. Uh, our event will consist of presentations from our speakers, uh, there is a round of brief opening uh, remarks, followed by some questions from myself. And of course, uh, that's the spirit of the LSE festival, but of any LSE event, the floor will then be open to questions from the audience. Um, we'll have a mix of uh, policy experts and practitioners with us today, uh, with uh, experience, a lot of experience in the areas of competition policy and state aid, and they will contribute to the panel from different perspectives. I will spare you a lengthy introduction, so I will just say that uh, the way we put together uh, the panel was intended a bit to understand you know, the past, present and future of competition policy uh, in Europe. And uh, um, I think the, the experts, our speakers, uh, will be basically be trying to cover these big topics, big theme from their different perspectives, from the different uh, expertise. Let me therefore now introduce our speakers. Um, the one that is here with me, next to me in person is Natura Gratia. Um, she's a partner at the Linklater's Antitrust and Foreign Investment Group. Uh, she has been, she has over 15 years of experience as a competition lawyer. And in addition, she specializes in uh, state aid, subsidies, utility regulation, and public procurement. Um, and their practice also includes contentious EU matters. Uh, Natura has advised clients across diverse industry sectors with particular expertise in the energy, water, and transport, transport sector sectors, as well as advising clients in the pharmaceutical and financial services sector. Then let me turn to uh, our speakers that are joining us online. Uh, Roberto Alimonti uh, is an expert in competition economics with over 10 years of professional experience, and he has significant expertise also in state aid and quantification of follow-up antitrust damages. He has acquired a strong reputation for his work on a number of high-profile cases on behalf of private and public sector clients, including competition authorities and sector regulators. Uh, this range from cartel and abuse of dominance cases to state aid, litigation and mergers. Um, Roberto works as a principal at uh, Oxira. He previously worked for one of the big four consulting firms in London and at the UK Office of Fair Trading. Then let me turn to our last speaker, um, Ruben Lapa Maximiano. He is a regional manager 
um, and senior competition expert at UACD in Paris since 2014, and also a lecturer at the Lille Catholic University since 2015. At UACD, is responsible for the work on competition policy in the Asia-Pacific region and coordinates the work on the role of competition policy for the COVID-19 crisis and recovery at UACD. And before joining UACD, actually, uh, Mr. Maximiano worked at the European Commission for nearly five years and uh, worked mostly on merger control in a number of sectors and has been part of the financial crisis task force, where he worked on a number of stated cases in the banking sector. So now, um, as I previously said, uh, we'll have a brief round of uh, uh, opening remarks and we'll start with uh, Natura. So Natura, I yield the floor. Thank you, Angelo. And hi, everyone. I mean, I have to say, as a starting point, it's really good to be here in person. The last two years have been very hard for many people. And I would say, if one thing is not bad about COVID, is the fact that we can hold events like this now, which is a hybrid event where a lot of people can access knowledge. And we have two esteemed speakers, both of them in different locations. I think one in Italy and the, and, and the other one is in Brussels. So not everything in COVID is bad. And we can now here talk about competition policy with people from all over Europe. And I would like to focus in my opening remarks um, around two aspects of competition policy during COVID. And, and these are antitrust enforcement, which I'll come into in a minute, and state aid. And the focus of my opening remarks is gonna be around what has happened in these two areas of competition policy, what the European Commission and national competition authorities, in particular with a focus on Europe, because the rest of the world is very, very big for me to comment in seven minutes. Um, and then what, what I think should be staying from, from these areas. So on antitrust, and antitrust enforcement basically is, for those who, who don't know much about competition law, is about prohibiting competitors uh, entering into agreements that could distort competition. For example, price fixing, your typical cartel. So what happened during COVID? Immediately lockdowns led to shortages of supply. There was a lot of concern about supermarkets having food on the shelves, toilet paper, for those in the UK, it was an obsession about toilet paper being available. And there was a need for cooperation between some competitors, in particular sectors like the healthcare sector for uh, medical equipment, to be able to talk about how to handle the crisis. But of course, competition law prevents these type of cooperations and, and discussions when it comes to parameters of competition, like pricing, for example, delivery schedules for truck drivers or availability of truck drivers if you are a grocery uh, supplier. So what, what happened during the crisis? Basically, breaching competition law has very serious consequences. And crisis cartels, as we would call them, are a dangerous business to be involved in because you can face very huge fines by the authorities <coughs> and reputational risk. So what the European Commission did and what the national competition authorities did was uh, to introduce what they call temporary frameworks. So basically, they revisited their enforcement priorities, so which cases they would actually pursue in terms of coordination between competitors. 
And, and, and they also introduce certain exemptions for certain sectors. So for example, in the UK, but also in the EU, there were what's called exclusion orders from the application of competition law. So there was one for groceries and there was another one, for example, for healthcare providers. And at EU level, there was also an exemption granted uh, in relation to agricultural products. So that's what they did. The other thing they did was to try to introduce some form of guidance so that this cooperation could happen. So you could go to the European Commission or the national competition authorities and get guidance about what you could talk about and not, and what you could agree on. And they had that oversight and issued comfort letters. So this is what basically encouraged businesses to say, well, we'll go one step further, we'll talk to each other, legitimately given the circumstances around what we can do to weather the crisis and the effects of the crisis and it provides a bit of protection so those are very good things that happen and this is how how this was tackled now what i think we should stay for the future is it's very interesting because competition law enforcement has always been about ensuring and promoting there is competition economic efficiency and a, an efficient uh, allocation of resources okay that's why you don't want people to come together into a room and start coordinating because that's not the most economic efficient uh, outcome but during the pandemic other objectives that are not purely economic needed to be taken into account and if you look towards the future with all the public policy objectives that in particular at the european level we are all pursuing so for example net zero targets diversity and inclusion and ESG, which is environment, sustainability and governance, there is, I think, some scope to keep some of these non-economic objectives when it comes to these public policy uh, areas in terms of providing guidance and tweaking and flexing the enforcement priorities of competition authorities to ensure that coordination can continue happening beyond a crisis like COVID was more towards achieving European objectives. So I think to me, that's an important aspect that we should probably try to keep from, from the regime. Now, moving to the next area I wanted to cover, which is the state aid. The state aid is slightly more interesting and, and tricky because as most of you will know, is a very EU specific animal. The state aid is about ensuring that there's no distortions of competition and we have a truly internal single market. And I say we, and based in London, but there, there you go, Brexit is still having something in my mind. <laughs> but it's all about ensuring an internal, and by the way, during the pandemic, the UK was still bound by the state rules. So actually, I had to advise the UK government on, on the application of the state rules in, to the measures they were adopting to, to weather the crisis um, that COVID um, brought, brought about. But the, the reason why I say it's very interesting is because you have a provision to grant the state aid for those who you don't know. So basically, this is to prevent having national champions and governments actually just paying money to their national champions. Uh, but and the European Commission monitors what are the boundaries of that. Now, the pandemic was an unprecedented event. It's not the only crisis event we've had. We had the financial crisis many, many years ago, and there there was also a quick response from the European Commission in terms of flexing the rules. But what the Commission did here 
Basically, they issued a temporary framework so that member states in the EU could grant aid according to their national priorities. So for, for equipment, for the aviation sector, it was for, for certain sectors. But of course, this creates quite a few challenges, right? Because the state aid basically is about governments spending their money in their, their priority areas and in their countries, right? So if you have certain governments that have great fiscal capacity, so for example, Germany, you have huge amounts of aid being approved, and I think Roberto will cover this in a minute, it's not the same, the amount of aid being approved and then whatever was granted in, in, in practice. But if you look at the, uh, at the first six months of, of the pandemic, March 2020 to December 2020, you had that probably 40% of the approved aid by the Commission was in relation to German measures, 20 or 25% was France, and all the other member states were much below. I think Spain was about 5% and Italy 1.5% that's approved aid it doesn't mean it's granted aid but when you actually look at GDP of each of these countries and population there's a huge disparity there and there's questions about well does this really promote having a level playing field within Europe and an internal single market because you can see that companies in certain member states which have more capacity to throw funds to weather the crisis may be better off than their competitors elsewhere in Europe. Now, the other thing I would say about the state aid is that before the pandemic, the majority of the state aid that was given was to pursue three objectives, which was research and development, um, regional, uh, regional aid, which was about you know, disadvantaged areas, and also environmental protection. During the pandemic, the last two years, there's been almost zero aid in these areas. It's all been about COVID. And it's, in a way, we've put aside all, all those good things that the state aid were, was, was there to promote just to you know, survive the crisis. So I think, <clears throat> I think what I see going forward, so there's a temporary framework, this has to finish because we need to get back into supporting the policy areas that uh, we think, you know, public money needs to support. And, and I think there, 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 there is a case, I think, for an EU-wide response to crisis. In a way, there is, for, for those who are familiar with this, there's the, the Recovery and Resilience Fund, which is the 70, 50 billion euros fund that the European Commission came up with, which is to basically help rebuild Europe post-pandemic. And that's, I think, a much better mechanism to deal with this type of crisis, because you ensure that you have a single set of policy objectives. So the way this fund works is every member state has to put a plan of a spending. They get allocated funds and they can grant aid based on these policy objectives that have been pre-approved with the Commission. So it ensures a little bit more of a parity in terms of the objectives being pursued and, and, and the fact that money gets spent in, in EU-wide uh, objectives. So I think um, that's all I wanted to say. Some food for thought there. I think the next person speaking is, is it Roberto? Yeah. Robert? No, it's going to be Roberto. And thank you very much for these uh, electric remarks. I think we will go, come back to some of the points you have actually made. Without further ado, actually, then yield the floor to Roberto. 
Hi everyone, I'll try to share my screen because I put together some, uh, some slides to uh, guide my, my thoughts. Uh, let me know if you're able to see them. Does it work? Yeah. Fantastic. All right. Uh, thanks, Angelo. And uh, first of all, let me thank the London School of Economics for the uh, great opportunity to be here virtually, still a legacy of, of COVID, I guess. Uh, as, as Natura was saying, it's fantastic to have hybrid events uh, and uh, share the, uh, such, a, such a great panel with such distinguished, distinguished speakers. Uh, I'm an economist, so I will try to cover, stick to the economics uh, in, my, in my opening remarks. Uh, and uh, to put together this slide from some of the research questions that underpin um, today's event. And, uh, and I think that the best way to um, understand um, if and to what extent competition policy in Europe uh, is going to change after COVID, uh, I think it's important to start by looking retrospectively at how the competition policy toolkit has been used over the last two and a half years. And in the interest of time, I'm going to be touching upon four, four areas that you see at the bottom of this slide. Uh, first is the emergency toolkits. Uh, Natura uh, very eloquently um, uh, introduced the notion of the temporary framework and some of the other measures that uh, the European Commission introduced to alleviate, let's say, the economic impact of, of COVID-19. Uh, the, the second one is the guidance on cooperation and collaboration between firms. N Natura also mentioned uh, this, this tool. Uh, the, the competition authorities, national and supranational, used uh, to resolve short-term uh, um, market failures. And then the other two areas are, first, the, um, the monitoring and intervention exercise that uh, um, uh, competition authorities and, and authority, national authorities in general have, uh, have done in the area of price increases. Um, or economists and, uh, and, uh, and lawyers in the, in the field of competition law and economics, typically or excessive pricing or unfair prices. And then finally, we'll be spending just a few, just a few minutes on, the, uh, on, on some thoughts on, on merger control. Um, so I'm not going to spend a huge amount of time on the, um, on the emergency toolkits. Uh, Natura has already introduced the notion of the temporary framework that was introduced by the European Commission. Here I put some numbers as, as an economist. Uh, I think it's important to see the sheer volume of cases that the European Commission had to go through over the course of two and a half years, uh, more than 1,300 decisions uh, uh, for an overall amount of aid that has been put aside of 3 trillion euros. Uh, that doesn't mean that uh, the entire pot of money was actually used. And there is also this trend, the recent trend whereby some of the money that was allocated to uh, COVID uh, is now shifted towards the support that is provided by companies uh, uh, to, um, to navigate uh, the, uh, the ongoing crisis in, in, in Ukraine. Uh, different ways in which aid has been provided from direct grants, the most distortive measure in terms of, in terms of state aid. Uh, to state guarantees, soft loans, etc. Natura explained that you know the uneven, let's say, use of uh, state resources by member states. So some states top the ranking, um, 
and they topped the ranking at different points in time. So it was it was nice to see, interesting to see the evolution of how different states actually managed to get first uh, into the use of the temporary frameworks, and uh, and some uh, um, uh, managed to catch up later. Um, temporary frameworks uh, that you see here on this slide are forward-looking tools. So these are tools that are used by um, uh, by member states to ensure that companies, that their econ the economy can restart from a crisis. Uh, I think it's also posing for, uh, worth pausing for a few seconds on the, on the use of the damages quantification tool. That was another avenue, another tool that was unlocked by the European Commission, uh, whereby uh, member states could uh, um, effectively compensate companies uh, retrospectively for the damage suffered as a result of COVID-19 slash binding restrictions. There has been uh, an interesting application of the law, which perhaps uh, it's, uh, it's something for the, for the Q&A session for the discussion later. Um, but I think it's worth uh, um, stressing that this is an area where actually quite a lot of economic and financial analysis uh, was, was done both by uh, practitioners like me, but also by the competition, by the by the European Commission to check that the that the quantification of damages was done adequately, and that the appropriate counterfactual was uh, was identified. Um, so quite uh, quite an innovative area uh, for for state aid. Um, not to mention the, the the guidance that was provided by uh, by competition authorities, national and supranational, to uh, to firms to come together, join forces, uh, cooperate and coordinate. Typically, cooperation and coordination is looked, um, as con is looked suspiciously by, by competition authorities because there is the presumption that can actually um, uh, damage uh, uh, consumer welfare. And in this case, uh, the, the sharp increase in infection rate in COVID cases, uh, the, the introduction of the restrictions, uh, that had an impact on the value chain. So it created some shortages of supply, so classic market failure. Competition authorities realized that, that they decided to step in and allow companies, competitors, in, in, in some cases, to join forces, cooperate, and cooperate in a number of ways. Cooperate in the way um, companies were, where they were producing products, where they were distributing products, um, so in a number of different forms, and uh, which I... Some of them I uh, summarized on the left-hand side of, of this slide. The right-hand side answers the, or tries to answer the effectiveness question, one of the questions that underpins this, uh, this discussion today, which is, were the competition tools used by, by authorities uh, sufficiently effective? And the results on the right-hand side uh, are, um, uh, have been collected by Global Competition Review. They run a survey um, amongst um, external legal advisors of companies, and they asked them whether their clients reached out to them flagging their need to join forces with other companies and put together a collaboration agreement. Uh, and uh, I think clearly every single empirical exercise uh, suffers some limitations. This exercise was carried out uh, towards the beginning of the pandemic. So it would be interesting to repeat the exercise now to see what the, um, what the, what the answers would look like. But I think it's striking from, from this bar chart to see that actually there was more uh, inclination by companies uh, um, around the use of uh, cooperation agreements. Uh, 
Um, and uh, the, the, the beauty of, of this survey is actually that you can see what type of cooperation agreement was actually used uh, by, by firms. Then the, the, the third area is almost like the flip side of cooperation, right? So you have, uh, imagine, the sharp increase in consumer demand for certain products. So let's jump on the time machine. Let's go back to the beginning of the crisis. Uh, uh, Natura was saying toilet paper. It could be disposable gloves, masks, uh, sanitizing gel, and, and so on. Uh, sharp increase, uh, rational or irrational, uh, that, that doesn't matter in, in consume, in, in, in for, of demand for certain products. And that sharp increase in demand was not met by uh, an adequate increase in supply, or maybe the supply was uh, sitting somewhere else, so was not sufficiently flexible. These uh, could create opportunities to raise prices, uh, uh, and uh, this was irrespective uh, of their dominance in a given market, which is typically what competition authorities need to demonstrate in order to go after companies for so-called excessive pricing. And so this is what economists typically call situational monopolies. Imagine that you have a lockdown tomorrow, you can no longer go to the walk 15-20 minutes to the usual grocery store, you need to buy some, uh, some disposable gloves, so you go to the local shop, the local shop all of a sudden gains quite a lot of uh, market power. That's the principle, that's how the economics work. And that local shop is able to put up prices for certain products. Now clearly the complexity here for competition authorities is to distinguish between legitimate and non-legitimate uh, price increases, because clearly if you have an increase in cost, then the price increase would be legitimate, right? But what if uh, the price increase is not linked to an underlying increase in cost? And even if you have uh, this connection between cost and prices, uh, up to which point, beyond which point you consider the price increase unfair? So there is an element of judgment here, and subjectivity, um, which makes uh, excessive pricing extremely difficult to, um, to assess for competition authorities and practitioners as well. Even more so during the crisis when Things were happening uh, literally overnight. Now, a number of competition authorities looked into uh, this uh, type of behavior by companies uh, in a number of different sectors. I reported some on, on this slide. And when you do that, uh, before you actually step in and you uh, stop uh, or try to deter companies from engaging in such behavior, you need to think uh, very carefully. Because effectively, you have a market failure that you want to resolve. But if you step in and you forbid companies from putting up prices, you might have actually uh, some side effects. Uh, and the side effects being that if you cannot increase prices, you don't give incentives to companies to come into the market or increase production. And then perhaps these companies try to relocate production or distribute products in markets where um, the uh, type of uh, competition law enforcement is a little bit more lenient. Uh, and so competition authorities need to um, strike a balance between intervention and, uh, uh, and, uh, and not uh, um, uh, putting companies off uh, um, when having to uh, increase, uh, uh, increase production for these products. Competition authorities have to say have been, have been creative during the pandemic. They used uh, quite a lot of uh, a plethora of, of tools uh, from joint statements. Uh, look, companies, uh, we are being serious about this, so you need, you need to stop uh, increasing prices up to wearing a different hat, wearing the hat of the regulator and saying, look, you cannot price this product above this given level, or you cannot extract more than these percentage points 
of margins when selling this product. And this is interesting and it's, it's worth highlighting. Now, finally, just to close off on, on merger control, I think a lot can be, said, can be said on merger control. I'm just going to be focusing on two, on two areas. One is the first is the failing firm defense. So there is still this uh, idea whereby the, um, there is a negative and inverse correlation between the number of firms that you have in the market and the degree of competition. And uh, when you have a merger, clearly you have uh, one company disappearing because they, they merge together, two companies merge together. So you have uh, more concentration in the market and there is the presumption that uh, competition, uh, the degree of competition goes down. But what if one of the two companies is a failing firm? That company would disappear anyway, right? And there was this expectation during the crisis, the beginning of the crisis, that a lot of, uh, a lot of merger cases uh, would have been put forward based on the so-called failing firm defense uh, due to COVID. Look, if I cannot merge with this other company, I'm going to go bust. Uh, and nothing is going to change because inevitably I'm going to out of the market and uh, the faction and the counterfactual would be identical. So you competition authority should clear the merger. Now, in reality, that uh, um, wave of... Uh, 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 failing firm defense cases uh, did not materialize. And one question uh, is actually, did that not happen because of the wave of state aid support that I talked about just a couple of slides earlier? Perhaps. Um, there have been a few cases indeed where the failing firm defense based on COVID was uh, taken into consideration by competition authorities uh, uh, in, in one way or another or by, by governments. I've reported a few examples here. The hospital NXCB in Italy is a little bit of a peculiar case because actually that was taken into consideration by the government as opposed to by the legislator, as opposed to the competition authority. And there have been cases where actually the failing firm defense based on COVID um, was not accepted. Uh, and curiously, uh, when the deal collapsed, then the merging parties received state support from governments, which actually... Um, uh, um, makes me think whether um, a merger control and state aid rules should be more interconnected. Final point before I shut up is the is the is remedies. Um, there was also the expectation that uh, on a number of cases, uh, um, companies uh, may want to uh, renegotiate remedies uh, with competition authorities or remedies that they put forward. Uh, uh, proactively to allow the competition authority to clear the merger. Clearly, the market conditions change. Some markets might have disappeared. Com the extended degree of competition might now be different. Uh, so those remedies are no longer needed. Uh, so competition authorities, let's rediscuss. And that's another area where practitioners were expecting uh, uh, some, uh, some degree of, of movement, of discussion with the competition authorities. In reality, I've done a little bit of picking I found two cases, one in Austria, one at the, at the European Commission level of uh, the first temporary and the second one, uh, 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 sort of partial waiver of commitments, um, but nothing more than this. I'm sure that there must have been discussions between competition authorities and merging parties to delay the implementation of remedies. These do not necessarily lead, as far as I understand, to, to a new decision. Um, but this is another area where merger control uh, perhaps was expected to change during the pandemic, but in reality, nothing major happened. And in the interest of time, I think I'm going to pause here.
Thanks. Perfect. Thank you, Roberto. Thank you very much. Um, very interesting insights. I'll move very fast to Ruben so that uh, we can uh, give in the interest of time with the opening remarks. Can you hear me? Yeah. 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 Okay, excellent. Um, thank you, Angelo, and uh, the LSC, of course, for, for the invitation. And it's a great pleasure to be here and to share this panel uh, with you and Natura uh, and, and Roberto. Uh, it's actually excellent to have a discussion for a general audience on competition policy, because contrary to what many people think, it's actually not rocket science. And what happens is that often the community is rather closed in on itself. So I'm going to be a little bit provocative and maybe it's a, it's a good thing that I'm, I'm on Zoom because I'm going to disagree with uh, Natura uh, uh, in a couple of points and with Roberto as well. So it's probably a, a good thing that I'm, I'm at arm's length, let's say. Um, so, um, I mean, I, I, what my main message, what my main thrust of what I'm going to say, I, I'm, I used to be an enforcer, now I'm, I'm a policymaker, right? So I, I've, I've got some slightly different viewpoints. Also, because in the middle of the crisis, and maybe I can call what I'm going to say in these initial remarks as sort of reflections from the crisis. If I was going to write the book, if anyone wanted to read it, that was what I would call it. Because during the crisis, you know, when I was um, co coordinating the COVID-19 task force here at the OECD, I had to have many discussions online with all sorts of different policy areas that were wanting to intervene at the OECD level and government, governmental level. And I realized from that that actually competition policy can and should be a more important component of economic policy than it has been. And, you know, I have three points to make in these remarks, but that really is my main message, that competition policy can and should be mainstreamed into economic policymaking in another way, uh, to, to, to a greater extent. And to do that, I'm going to zoom out into a policy space and then zoom back into the more enforcement <coughs> space. Um, and so why is it that I think that it should be mainstream? Well, um, first point is that competition policy is actually a wider policy than just enforcement and antitrust, uh, which is what commonly we, we associate with competition policy. Uh, it's actually an all-out approach to making markets work better, uh, ensuring that market power is not created or abused in a way that is bad for our economies. So there's wide empirical evidence that markets, if they're working well, they can deliver innovation so that we use our resources better. That leads to productivity, keeps our growing prosperity, and actually also helps reduce inequality because it lowers profit margins for the few shareholders and lowering prices for all, for us consumers. So competition policy uh, ha has there's that background to it. It's also about making smarter legislation that takes into account not only the interests of those companies that are already there, uh, but those companies that want to come into the market with better solutions to our problems and to our desires. So in a way, competition authorities are the protectors of the market process, um, whilst many lobbies of existing companies are there to protect their existence, to protect their profits. So if you want markets working for us, you need competition not just many competitors, but the possibility that new entrants are coming in with those new solutions, keeping existing players on their toes and ensuring that they're improving their products and finding innovative new green ways of doing things. And I'm talking about new green ways because that's gonna be 
a big part of what I'm going to say, uh, not immediately, but in, in, in a significant chunk coming next. So how, as I see it from these reflections, competition policy can sit at the apex between state interventions uh, via regulations, subsidies, taxes, and on the one hand, and markets. That's where competition policy can sit. So I promised I was gonna zoom in, so I'm gonna do that now, and then I'm gonna zoom back out again. So the second point I want to make is from the lessons from COVID-19 pandemic. Some of them have been mentioned already uh, by Natura and, and also by Roberto. I'm gonna have a slightly different take. This is where I would probably move slightly away from, from Natura if I was sitting there, uh, in case uh, uh, she got a little bit pissed. <laughs> was that, um, you know, I think that this was all about, not about, you mentioned flexibility, uh, Natura. I would argue that it was not flexibility. It was consideration of the factual circumstances, economic factual circumstances that existed. And that's what competition authorities and competition law and policy can do. Perhaps it hasn't done as much as it could do, but it should do and it can do because it's about market failures in, in the instance that you explained. Um, by that, I mean, you know, features of the market that uh, the market is not delivering uh, as efficiently as a, you know, a normally functioning market would mean. Um, and it means that if competition enforcement does not take full account of those market failures, it can actually do wrong uh, and not do right. It can have a counterproductive effect. And that's why the competition analysis in concrete cases should always begin by understanding the circumstances. And that will include a question. Are there any significant market failures that are affecting the relationship between supply and demand? And competition authorities, in my view, and that's where we start concurring again, Natura and Roberto, did a great job in considering the short-term supply and demand shocks during COVID and allowing, for instance, cooperation agreements uh, as they were actually more efficient, not because they were flexibilizing the rules, but because they were actually more efficient than firms that would act on their own in the competition during the circumstances of the pandemic. Okay, the second lesson from the pandemic is about what efficiency actually means, and it's linked to the first point. So um, I think here what we've had is a clarification that efficiency in the competition framework is not about short-term efficiencies, but it's really about the long-term, the long-term dynamic perspective of efficiencies. Um, this means being open to look at the impact on choice, on innovation, and quality as much as we look at changes in price. And this is particularly important, and I mentioned the green transition, this is where I start talking about it. This is particularly important in the context of the great green transition, hopefully the great green transition, I would add. Because whilst authorities have been right to focus to date mostly on price effects, um, which are more measurable and align often, and can act, therefore act as proxies for long-term effects, this, proxy mechanism breaks down when you're looking at environmental impacts, which often unfold over an extended period, frequently putting short-run price effects at odds with the long-term goals of consumer welfare that competition policy exists to protect, not for the short-term, but for the long-term, efficiency for the long-term. Hi, I'm interrupting this event to tell you about another awesome LSE podcast that we think you'd enjoy. LSE IQ ask social scientists and other experts to answer one intelligent question. Like, 
Why do people believe in conspiracy theories? Or can we afford the super rich? Come check us out. Just search for LSE IQ wherever you get your podcasts. Now back to the event. This shift can be characterized, and many have already mentioned this, I'm not making this up, as a move from a sort of a price-centric to an innovation-centric competition. Uh, and in particular, I'm not saying that we should use that for every sort of market, but it makes sense for me in markets like energy, like transport, like steel, se- cement, sectors where there's a significant carbon footprint and where you need to take this more long-term view. So, um, uh, uh, and, and here I need to explain a little bit about competition and how it provokes, promotes innovation, because it promotes innovation for several reasons. First, more firms doing research and development increases the likelihood that at least one of them is going to have a successful innovation. Second, that uh, in a more competitive market, there's more incentives to innovate, as they can therefore steal more sales from their competitors. And thirdly, you know, when you have monopoly power, you actually have a disincentive to create innovations if they cannibalize profits from your existing products. And also it actually creates a switching cost as well, because if you're having to do new products, uh, you have to change your methodologies and your ways of doing so, doing things. So what we see is that a lot of disruptive innovations are coming from new entrants, which is links to what I said about the fact that competition authorities should be there protecting new entry. Um, you know, and the example from the COVID-19 crisis is the mRNA vaccines, uh, for instance. And I believe uh, that our traditional analytical framework of consumer welfare is uh, there, I would put that word flexible enough uh, to accommodate for looking at these more long-term effects. Let me just finish with, uh, I realize I'm nine minutes already, so two minutes above my time, uh, time frame. I need two more minutes if you, if you, if you allow me. Um, and if you third... do one, that would be great, thanks. Yeah. <laughs> I'll try and do that. So the third point I want to make relates to industrial policy for green innovation and the role for competition policy. You know, normally you think of uh, industrial policy and competition as inimical. They don't go well together. When in fact, from my reflections, I think they're actually complementary. Industrial policy should address clear identified market mechanisms that that the market cannot solve, the market failures I mentioned, uh, and employ the best appropriate measures to correct those failures. But they need to be imbued with competition principles um, so that um, you should use market-based processes to select the recipients of support when they can, and in order to ensure that the disciplinary measure of terminating state support as soon as the enterprise fails to deliver, as soon as the enterprise that's the recipient of the aid stops performing or achieving set and clear objectives. And these are all things that competition uh, policy and principles can help uh, uh, put in. And if, you know, now it's just really one minute, you know, a fundamental part of what we're going to see in the next few years, and this is where I'm looking forward, is to support breakthrough technologies. That was the call of of, of both Natura and Roberto. You need to start looking forward. And uh, that's gonna be breakthrough technologies in energy, transport, construction. And you need innovations around renewables, green, hydrogen, et cetera. We know that approximately 75% of clean technologies will need to reach, are needed for us to reach net zero. And they're still at the early stages of development. So most of what we need is still at early stages of development. And all of this new green tech uh, will not only need to be further developed, but also then needs to be scaled. And that's where, you know, I think you need the state to kickstart and the markets to maintain sort of a green, clean tech virtuous circle, 
right, that keeps the whole mechanism running so that you get not just the development of innovations, but then a deployment at scale so the green premiums, as Bill Gates calls them, go down significantly. And it actually becomes cheaper to use these uh, green tech products than before. And I believe that competition needs to be inbuilt, not just as a control as we have in the EU, but as a feature of the design. Uh, of every relevant state measure. So in state aid is the control, I'm saying that national member state level, uh, perhaps you know, member states themselves, when they're designing these measures, may need to consideration, they need to consider competition principles from the start. Uh, and competition authorities, they have the skills, they can be more involved um, uh, uh, and to make these things work better. And so that you know, you're substituting the contact book for the accounting book. Uh, ensuring that the state is getting uh, good value for money and we're getting the, the you know, the promises uh, of, of green tech that we need to overcome the current uh, climate crisis as well. So thank you. Thank you very much, Ruben. I mean, uh, I think it was extremely important to zoom out for a second uh, as well and bring in also other themes that are um, are have certainly been uh, uh, on the surface uh, also all the discussions of, on antitrust uh, and competition in general. Um, let me just uh, uh, ask for three clarifications from each speaker um, and sort of question. And uh, I already received one question online and I'm sure there will be others in the audience. So uh, uh, I will ask you for a one, minute, one to two minute answer if you can. So let me start with Roberto, uh, if you agree. Um, you were talking about merger control and state aid, and it seems that the boundaries between the two um, during times of crisis often become blurred. So uh, could you help us a bit understand uh, more of these interlinkages from uh, your perspective? Yeah, sure. I mean, the, the example that I was mentioning earlier of using the failing firm defense and you know when you when you have a when you have a company that is going to exit the market anyway and then as a, as a policy maker you need you need to decide right uh, if you also have at the same time the possibility to support to rescue and restructure that company with the money of taxpayers uh, then then you're facing a trade-off right as a competition authority what would you do would you let the merger go ahead or block the merger and then hope that the government of the state intervenes. What, what, what I think about, I, I think that state aid rules and, uh, and merger control in these circumstances are a little bit disconnected and they would benefit from a broader consideration as to which tool should be used. And it doesn't necessarily mean that one tool excludes the other. Maybe you know, state support is not large enough and then maybe that company needs to merge anyway because otherwise it would go out of the market but then i think ultimately as an economist uh, i think the interesting exercise would be to run a trade-off a cost-benefit analysis between the two tools which one do you, do you want to use well that's that needs to be driven by evidence in a sense and also consideration around welfare so if you think about it you let the merger go ahead Who's, um, maybe, you know, as a result of the merger, the, the merging parties put prices up. Who's going to pay for that? The users of that product. You grant, uh, you block the merger and you, and you allow companies to receive a state compensation. Who's going to pay for that? Everyone. 
taxpayers. So there is also a question of distribution of welfare when you choose between a merger, allowing a merger or using the the state, the state control, the state, the, the, the state, the state aid avenue. So my, my recommendation based on what I've seen during the crisis is that these two tools are a little bit disconnected and they would benefit from more integration. Thank you very much. It's certainly clear. Uh, let me then uh, ask this question to Natura because you've been talking about temporary framework. Do you think it is actually standing the test of time and uh, how can it be improved and how could it be turned into a permanent tool, if at all? Okay, I'll start with the end, which is I don't think it should become a permanent tool because of the potential distortions that it has brought to the EU <coughs> market. But in terms of whether it has a standard, uh, the test of time, I mean, the temporary framework was adopt adopted in March 2020, and there's been six modifications to the temporary framework. And that included not only extensions, because obviously the crisis, you know, the pandemic continued, um, evolving, but also additional types of aid that were included. For example, one of the big developments was introducing the possibility of capital injections into companies, but mainly states. That was quite, quite a big development. So I think it has stood, if I said that correctly, the, the, the test of time in the sense because the commission has been flexible enough to change it with the dialogue with the member states. I think the last uh, a couple of weeks ago, three weeks ago, Vice President Vestager already said that they are not going to extend the temporary framework anymore, that from the Commission's perspective, crisis is over. Certain measures can still continue and can be granted until 2020, the end of 2022 and, and 2023. But now it's time to move on and, and, and look at going back to the normal state framework. And I think that's probably the right choice. Because we always have the tool, or the European Commission always has the tool of putting in some framework to deal with an emergency situation. And in fact, we do have now a Ukrainian temporary framework to deal with all the companies that are facing challenges due to the, you know, the lack of supply of gas, in particular in the energy sector. So I think um, not a permanent tool, but I think it's, it's a good tool to, to have had uh, in place. Thank you very much. And lastly, Ruben, um, uh, you have you know, also in your remarks emphasized the very proactive role that competition authorities can play. Um, and also in a recent OECD report that you have quartered, you were mentioning how competition authorities can bring pro-competitive uh, structure reforms. Could you please elaborate a bit more on this aspect? Yeah, thanks, uh, Angelo. So, uh, I mean, this is something that we, we discussed quite a bit at the OECD and we had a lot of discussions uh, with a number of different countries of OECD and outside the OECD, many of which are from the EU. And in fact, what we collected was in fact that, you know, crisis moments are also moments of opportunity. So governments are looking for ways in which to, you know, kickstart growth or rec recovery. And so what we saw is that either of competition authorities can sort of push for structure, they can push for structural reforms uh, of a legal nature, for instance, changing uh, rules and regulations to make them more open to competition. Um, and they can do so, um, you know, by proposing to eliminate restrictions or having less restrictive uh, policies. 
And we saw that this was actually being done in, in practice in many jurisdictions, including, you know, we had examples from Portugal, examples from Mexico, from Spain, um, from the UK. So it was actually an opportunity that competition authorities can use. And they did so mainly by looking at uh, uh, three items. One is ensuring the what we call the competitive neutrality in public financial support to firms. So making sure that, you know, we're not favoring unduly certain players over the others, what uh, uh, Natura mentioned in the initial remarks as the national champions. Um, so trying to do that in a sort of more neutral way. We have a competitive neutrality recommendation of the OECD, and I think that the countries were using that recommendation as well uh, in order to in, you know, make that advice to governments. Uh, secondly, sort of uh, making proposals to remove those unnecessary barriers to expansion. Uh, and then thirdly, sort of uh, advice for governments to combat bid rigging and ensuring sort of competitive and efficient public tenders, uh, given that, of course, public money was being used quite significantly. So often this was being done on the back of work that had been done over the years, market studies um, that uh, agencies had done. Uh, for instance, Portugal had done a market study in 2019 on the legislative framework for electric vehicle charging. The UK has also done recently uh, an electric vehicle charging uh, market study. And they pushed for those findings as an element of the economic recovery. So when the, there was a discussion of the economic recovery packages, the Portuguese Competition Authority advised government to uh, apply some of the recommendations it had, it had been preparing beforehand, because that was the moment where government was re-looking at ways in which to sort of kickstart growth. So that's one way in which competition authorities can help um, sort of these structural reforms at these moments. Yeah. Thank you very much, Ruben. Extremely clear. Let me, uh, therefore, as I promised, uh, open, open the floor to questions from the audience. I have a couple online. Uh, let's hear also if there are any in the room. If not, yeah, please. If you can state who you are and uh, uh, who, to whom the question is directed towards, or if the, for the whole panel. Thank you so much. Uh, my name is Enrique Bravo. I'm a lawyer. Um, the question is for Natura, actually. Um, I was wondering if you have any comment or prediction about the uh, Subsidy Control Act in relation to the topic of your presentation. That's an interesting question. Hi, Enrique. <laughs> um, we know each other, actually. I see. <laughs> um, so in, in relation to COVID, I mean, the Subsidies Control Act, which is the... UK equivalent for those who don't know of the state level. So as part of the EU and the UK trade deal, the UK had to introduce some form of state aid control a la EU. And so they, they've come up with this subsidies regime. And, and that regime allows you to allows the, the UK government to grant uh, subsidies in emergency situations to deal with COVID. So actually, interestingly, what, what this means is that potentially they can derogate more than what you would be able to do under the traditional state aid framework. Uh, we are now out of the pandemic, so I haven't seen the UK government trying to use this, um, this exception in the Substance Control Act. But if there was to be another crisis, like the Ukrainian crisis that is coming, it's, it's possible that the UK government will try to use that. And, and that potentially would put it outside the scope of whatever it has agreed 
with the uh, European Union in terms of uh, substance control. Thank you very much. Any other questions? Yeah, in the back. Hi, uh, my name is James. I'm a student at the LSE. Um, I have a question about um, the EU's uh, competition policies on uh, targeted at the digital industry in particular. Um, so as we all know, the EU relies extensively on imports of digital services from the US, internet giant companies, Google, Facebook, etc. And uh, there is, uh, and, and, and the EU is struggling to uh, support domestic uh, internet companies to compete with these um, US giants. Um, so I wonder if the European Union has any uh, plans um, to support um, uprising companies um, to compete with these, um, you know, really strong dominant firms uh, from outside the EU. Thank you. So it's a question, I guess, for the whole panel. Uh, I don't know if uh, Roberto, Ruben, or Natura, do you have any views on this? Would like to go first? I can just briefly say yeah. perhaps that the that at the European level, there have, be, there have been tools implemented to allow Europe to catch up. These are called IPCE uh, projects, projects of important uh, large interest for, for Europe. There has been one before the pandemic, uh, shortly before the pandemic, on, on batteries. There was one on micro, microelectronics, uh, and I'm sure there will be many more. The, these are um, programs uh, that cover uh, diagonally uh, Europe uh, and, and incentivize companies uh, to actually start producing um, these types of products uh, in Europe so we can catch up with, with Asia, the US, and so on. That's my brief answer. So something is happening, something is on motion. It's probably going to take a little bit of time before, before we actually see the results, but the tool is, the tool is there. Okay. Thank you. Um, I have a, a couple of questions online. Uh, so I'll start with Ruben. Um, Ruben, there is a question for you uh, from Tommaso Cresciori, a PhD student at the LSC. He's asking, do you think that there is a trade-off between static competition, uh, many firms competing in a market, and the environment? Yeah, I think that's a really great question. Can I just go back to the digital one? Very yeah, quickly of course. And just say that... Uh, uh, you know, um, the, the, we have the Digital Markets Act, which the European Union has adopted, which is precisely meant to face uh, sort of lower barriers to entry um, uh, and eventually sort of allow for more contestability in the marketplace in the long term. I'm not aware of any specific subsidy uh, that are for digital companies. Uh, neither do I particularly personally see the the need for that necessarily, as long as we have a contestable market, that should be enough for us to be able to, uh, you know, um, uh, get the uh, benefits of a competitive digital markets, regardless of where the, you know, they're headquartered here or there. Um, so uh, going to Tomasa's question, I think it's a very interesting question on the, on the static competition. Um, what we know is, you know, Philippe Aguillon, who is sort of the, the, um, someone who writes extensively on innovation, has clearly shown, you know, that the moment that there's competition is the moment that uh, um, 
you know, it, it can favor the environment. Um, so as long as consumers care, right? So um, that's an important caveat. Um, but still, um, if, if, we, if consumers do care, then competition, we know, can really maximize our move towards innovating for the, the green, clean tech. Now, having said that, on the static competition issue, and it comes back a little bit to what uh, Natura and I were saying about either flexibility or market failures, whatever you want to call it, which is um, this idea that in certain instances, um, they're actually uh, what we call first mover disadvantage situations. So situations where a company will not invest in green because it's fearful that it might be undercut by rivals. Uh, and you know, consumers are switching to competitors that offer cheaper but more polluting options than them. You know, the critical example that we're seeing now as well is the cement issue, where you know there's a very significant environmental footprint coming from cement. I didn't know about this a few months ago, but I've been you know looking at this quite a bit, uh, and it's really um, um, uh, some you know there's a number of producers that are willing to invest in recapturing technologies for their emissions to differentiate their products. Uh, but this, you know, would increase prices by up around, you know, 140%. So, you know, um, you know, it's, it's it, how much do intermediary customers uh, care about being sustainable when they're actually, you know, sort of fighting to survive on thin margins. Um, so we can envisage here that cooperation between competitors may eventually be needed to bring the greener cement and the connected technologies to the market and make it reach scale. So this is a you know, situation where I can imagine, you know, perhaps sort of uh, um, uh, taking into account that there's this first move disadvantage by competition authorities will allow them to make, I wouldn't call it that trade-off, but make the right decision about whether uh, in fact a particular cooperation that might be before it should or not be uh, considered acceptable under the competition, uh, competition rules. Thank you very much. Uh, unfortunately, time is up, so uh, I uh, won't be, uh, in a way, monopolizing my role as chair uh, further. And uh, uh, I also know that uh, uh, you all have other commitments. Uh, so um, I'm sure the, the speakers uh, and Natura, in, uh, uh, not right after the event, but uh, also Roberto and uh, Ruben will be available also by email if there are further questions. I know that we have uh, a question still online from Fola uh, Vignero at Cambridge, which won't be uh, uh, answered, unfortunately, but uh, you can approach you know, the speakers uh, individually after the event. Uh, it's been a great pleasure, um, I, I guess, uh, both for me uh, and I hope for you uh, to listen to uh, our speakers today. Thank you very much, uh, Natura, Roberto and Ruben for accepting our invitation to take part uh, in uh, this event and for the excellent discussion. And uh, thank you all uh, in the audience, both here and uh, online uh, for participating, for listening in. Uh, thank you very much. Thank you for listening. You can subscribe to the LSE Events Podcast on your favourite podcast app and help other listeners discover us by leaving a review. Visit lse.ac.uk forward slash events to find out what's on next. We hope you join us at another LSE event soon.